Good morning. It is a joy to be back with you again today, uh, hearing from God's Word as we study it together. Uh, like Pastor Jeff said, Pastor Brian is serving in one of our sister expositors churches this morning in Houston, Texas, and he's actually been preaching all weekend at the Spurgeon Conference. So he's coming back to uh, his birthday, I'm sure he'll be a little tired on his birthday, but uh, it's a good tired, as we say, in the office. Well, he and I were chatting this week about what would be most edifying uh, to bring to you guys this morning. And as we were talking, we thought it would be good to go back and pick up the theme that we looked at several weeks ago, the theme of spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. We all sense that things are changing for the church in America. We looked at that when we, when we first looked at this passage we sort of intuitively know, or it feels like, we're entering into a new season of open opposition and antagonism from the culture all around us. It's becoming more apparent, um, even now, that we're in a war of a different sort, and that we need to be ready for what we're going to face. But even if it feels new to us, it would be a, a huge mistake to think that this is something brand new, um, because it's not. It's not at all. The major shift didn't happen uh, a few years ago, a year and a half ago, with the rise of COVID and, and all of the changes that that brought. It happened several thousand years ago when Christ came into the world. A major shift happened at the coming of Christ upon His resurrection from the dead. Christ set in motion what the Bible describes as the last days. The latter days, or the last hour, as John calls it in 1 John. He set in motion that period in human history between the comings of Christ, when opposition against the Messiah and against His people escalates. It's that period when sin increases, when antichrists and false prophets abound, seeking to lead many astray. Jesus prepared His own apostles to face these days, and they too prepared their churches by implication, um, everybody who would follow um, in their footsteps, reading their writings um, for decades to come. And that includes us. And like we saw several weeks ago, one of the clearest passages preparing the church to stand faithful in the spiritual battle is Ephesians 6. So you can go ahead and turn there, Ephesians 6. And this passage is Paul's giant exclamation point at the end of this letter to the Ephesians. As he brings this letter to a close, he doesn't want us to forget that we've entered into the spiritual draft, so to speak. We've entered into His army. We've been swept up into the greatest of all battles, the cosmic battle. It's the battle for the souls of humanity. You and I were once part of the enemy's army, whether we realized it or not. We were dead in our sin and we're following the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2. But Christ came, He preached peace to us, 
He resurrected us from our spiritually dead state. He forgave our treason. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And that means He seated us far above the demonic hordes we were once enslaved to and blindly following. Now, we have been mercifully drafted into His regal army. His kingly army. And not only were we drafted, but we have also been outfitted for the battle. He's given us everything we need. He's given us His very own armor, as we'll see this morning. His very own weaponry to stand against the enemy of our souls and to advance Christ's mission on earth. But just because we have the resources, that doesn't mean that we're safe. Why is that? Well, Because we have to learn to use them. We must learn to take them up, or put them on, as Paul would say in this passage. We must take them up and appropriate them into our lives. So this morning, we're going to look at what Paul tells us to appropriate. Some of the specifics, these individual pieces of the armor. And we're going to look at how to put them on. We're going to lean in and listen as Paul spells out exactly how we're to take up the whole armor of God like he he told us to do in verses 11 and 13. So before we get into the the exposition of of the details of this passage, I just want to take a step back and say one thing about where Paul is getting this imagery. We've often heard it said that, that Paul is drawing this imagery from the Roman centurion, right? Many of you heard that? And that's definitely partially true here. He does appear to draw on that background, at least at some level, for bits and pieces of this armor. But I don't think that it's primary. If you're reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible this morning, look down and you'll see, you'll notice that some of these statements of the pieces of armor are in all caps. You see that? That indicates that the editors of the translation believe that Paul is drawing from the Old Testament in this passage. And I think they're right. More fundamental than the background of the Roman centurion is the imagery of God in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah. Over and over again in that book, God describes both himself and his messianic king in imagery that's very similar to what Paul uses here in Ephesians. In Isaiah, the Lord is described as a warrior king. He's clothed in this metaphorical armor, which is his mighty character. And he's coming to save his people from both their sin and their enemies who have oppressed them. God and His Messiah are clothed for battle and they are victorious in it. So listen just to a few examples from Isaiah. You don't need to turn there. You can jot them down if you want to look at them later. But Isaiah 11.5 Talking about the Messiah, Isaiah describes his character in terms of his armor. Here it is. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And again, later, in Isaiah 49, 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Isaiah 59, 17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for His clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So this imagery is not new to Paul and it's not primarily in the background of the Roman centurion. It's coming straight from Isaiah. 
So the biblical authors here, like Isaiah, liken God as this warrior king, and they describe his character in terms of armor, and they describe his words in terms of a sharp sword. But if you go back to Ephesians, Ephesians 6, Paul does something interesting here. As an inspired apostle, he makes an interesting development with this imagery in Ephesians. He applies the imagery of these Isianic texts to us, to the people of the Messiah, to the church. Now this may be interesting, so how does that work? But it shouldn't be surprising. Now why do I say that? Well, because even in the Old Testament, the king represents the people, doesn't he? Think of the classic example of David and Goliath. David fights the battle for the nation, and his victory is applied to them. There's a solidarity between the king and the, and the kingdom, the king and the people. The same applies in terms of the covenant. If the king obeys, the people benefit. If the king is unfaithful, then the, then the people suffer. And with the Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king, this solidarity becomes even more explicit, especially in Isaiah. Isaiah draws this out tremendously in places like Isaiah 55. The king, in his obedience, he earns the righteousness that the people deserve, the people need, they don't deserve, and he bends that out, gives it freely to his people. We, as his people, then benefit. As his body, we share in the victory of our king, and we also share in his mission. We've been raised up for battle as his new army, and he empowers us to fight. So what's Paul's point here? Why does he apply these passages to us? Well, he wants us, he wants us to recognize that we are to be clothed with the Messiah's very armor. We're to fight with the weapons that he fought with, that he currently fights with. And we will overcome evil with that armor, with that weaponry, just like he did as we follow him. So that's why I'm calling today's message Battle Ready, Fighting with the Messiah's Weaponry. We need to learn to take it up and fight with it like he did. And this morning, Paul's going to detail out Six pieces of this armor, or six, really five pieces of armor and one weapon, um, but we'll say for simplicity's sake, six pieces of armor that uh, we need to put on, that he wants us to appropriate, and as we learn to do this, this is how we fight against Satan in this cosmic battle. The initial piece of the battle armor that Paul describes that's necessary for us to appropriate if we're going to faithfully stand against Satan is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Look with me in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. But having fastened on the belt of truth, that's where we're keying in on right now. When you think about a belt, you probably don't think about war, right? You probably think about your closet, about your wardrobe, um, whether or not it matches your shoes. For you ladies, some of you men may think that as well. 
But if we, if we translate this phrase literally, like the, like the NASB does, it goes like this. Stand, having girded your loins with truth. What does that mean? Typically don't talk that way. Well, during these times, men often wore tunics, which are long, free-flowing, kind of like a dress. Um, and to gird up the loins had to do with tucking the bottom of your tunic into your belt and effectively making more like what was a dress into loose-fitting pants so you could move more quickly. So at the risk of embarrassment, and step out here, you've got a long, flowing tunic on, reach down, you grab it, between your legs, and you tuck it in right here. So it makes what was kind of like a dress now into pants. That's the idea. So gird up your loins. <laughs> Girding, then, helps you get around much more effectively. When Pastor Brian gets back, do me a favor. Don't tell him that I stepped up outside of the pulpit and demonstrated what it looks like to gird up your loins. But not fly very well. So what's Paul saying here, okay? The idea is that this phrase communicates mobility. Mobility. Paul's saying the truth gets us ready for action. It gets us ready for battle. The truth is like our belt to tuck, into our, to tuck our tunic into so that we can fight effectively. So then that raises another question. Well, then how does the truth mobilize us in spiritual warfare? Well, the answer is fairly simple. Um, without the truth, we are hopelessly entangled in falsehood. We're hopelessly entangled in the propaganda of Satan. Our tunics aren't tucked in, so to speak. Our garments are hanging around our legs. So when it's time to move, we're going to get tripped up. We'll stumble out of the gate by falling for lies. When the onslaught comes, instead of standing firm... And swiftly advancing with truth, we're going to be entangled after a few steps. We're going to be on our backs. And that's the imagery here. So what is actually just taking up the truth? What is this putting on this belt? What does it look like? Well, I think the first thing Paul would say is that it looks like learning the truth from pastors and teachers in the context of the local church, when the church gathers and I'm taking that right from Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Where Paul there says that God has given gifts to the church, among whom are the shepherds and teachers, and their role in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Or to put it differently, they, they teach the truth. And the goal in that passage is they teach the truth to the members of the body, so that the members of the body are built up, they're able to discern the lies, and they're able to effectively work for Christ's sake. And so being equipped by them, then, means we sit under the preaching ministry of the church. Morning services, evening services, equipping classes, Sunday school ministries. It means, then, that we, that we interact with, with pastoral counseling, where the Word is applied specifically to our particular scenarios, and we learn to... To, to, as we'll see in a minute, to root out the lies that we're tempted to believe and put off the old man and put on the new. So in our context, these are our Sunday services, our equipping classes on Sunday nights, the various shepherding ministries that we have, like Sunday school and the small groups that happen within those. So 
The point is that so much happens when we gather together as a body. So much truth is brought to us. That's, that's the first way I think Paul would say we're to gird up our, our loins with truth. We hear the truth when we gather. That's obvious. We sing the truth when we gather. We pray the truth when we gather. We even see the truth as it's displayed in the elements when we take communion, when we see baptisms. And that means then that it would be very natural for, for Paul to say that we also put on this belt of truth as we experience life in the body. As we receive truth from other people in discipleship. And I'm drawing this from verses 15 and 25 of the chapter 4. Verse 15 says that we grow by speaking the truth in love to one another. And in verse 25... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So that's every one of you. That's all of us speaking truth together as a body in relationship with each other. Paul says the church, as it is equipped, the local church, this Ephesian church, and by extension, Timberlake Baptist Church, as we are equipped, we are to speak the truth to one another in deep relationships. We reverberate that truth in all of our relationships. And that's why it's so important that we, that we commit together, that we covenant together in a body and membership to do this very thing. We want to know each other and be open with one another so that we can receive truth from one another freely. And these discipling relationships happen most often in our Sunday school classes, in the small groups that spring out of those, out of those classes. It's not that it can't happen in a corporate service. You can certainly meet someone and go out to coffee and do those things or, or whatever you do, invite them over out of a corporate gathering. But most of the time, these connections happen in, in these smaller ministries, these smaller shepherding ministries. So I just encourage you to be involved in those and to avail yourself of that shepherding and life, the life within the body to put on this belt of truth. And the last thing we would say is that Maybe. You guys help me out back there? Sweet. Okay, there we go. The last thing we would say is that we're mobilized with the truth as we personally and daily renew our minds. As we renew our minds with that truth. Okay? And again, drawing that from verse 23 of chapter 4. Paul says we're to put off this old man in verse 22 and verse 23 to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that means we're mobilized with the truth as we, as we personally and daily renew our minds. So not only do we have sermons, not only do we have friendships, but we also have printed Bibles in our hands that for most of church history the church hasn't had. Um, that's been a relatively new phenomenon that we each have personal copies of God's truth. We have Bibles we can read anytime we want. We have truth memorized that we can think about. We don't even have that Bible. You can, you can store the truth in your heart. We sing truths in songs. Uh, we, we internalize lyrics. We meditate on what's taught to us in the assembly. In all these ways, we can renew our minds in the truth. And renewing our minds means then we're simultaneously, what that means is we're rooting out lies that we've believed. We're learning to think differently. 
We're learning to say, I used to think like that, but I learned the truth in that area, now I think like this. We can articulate those differences. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know where I'm thinking wrongly, Clay? Well, again, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. Look for the sin patterns in your life. Where are you sinning? Where's your conscience inflamed? Where are you constantly being tripped up? And why do I point there? I point there, we sin because we have been deceived. Just like Eve. We sin because we've been deceived. We sin because we've assessed good and evil wrongly. We think it's good for us when it's not, when it's actually destruction. And so that means we've fallen prey to a lie and we need to unpack that. We, we don't believe the right things about God in the moment. We don't believe the right things about ourselves. So your sin patterns can help you work backwards, if you will, to the, to the thinking that needs to change. You can use your sin to see where your mind needs renewing. And that's what it would look like to put on the belt of truth. And all those things work together, right? Often it's hard to see where we're deceived. So we need body life. Um, we need preaching to come to us from the outside to help us read our Bibles better. I mean, they all, it all works together for the putting on the belt of truth. And Paul goes on then, and he adds a second piece of armor here, and he calls it the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. This is again in verse 14, back in Ephesians 6 here, from Ephesians 4, back, back in Ephesians 6. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So we faithfully stand against Satan as we, we put on this next piece of armor, um, this breastplate. And as the name implies, a breastplate covers your chest and your vital organs. It's incredibly protective. Don't want to go into battle without it. But what exactly is he talking about when he refers to righteousness? Well, I think the core of what he's getting at, we can summarize it like this. The core is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Being like Christ in all of his fullness. It's Christ's own, his own character in action, in life. That's glorious righteousness. So that raises another question then. Well, how do we put it on? What, what, is that, what should that process look like? Well, I think Paul would say that foundationally, we've got to remember that we already have it. Okay? You have to remember that we already have the righteousness of Jesus from Ephesians 4.24. There he, he commands us to put on the new self. In other words, get after being righteous. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Which means you already have it. Christ already obtained it for you. Now you have to learn to put it on. You have to learn to, in reality, begin to, to, to act like you already are in Christ. Act like what He's already obtained for you. Learn to live it out in your experience. So that means then, we've got to remember that we already have it. We already have His own righteousness freely given to us. And this is very protective. It protects us from Satan's accusations, right? We all know the guilt that comes when we sin, don't we? 
And rightly so, we've transgressed. But Satan tempts us to respond wrongly to that, to hide our sin, to sulk, to blame other people, to begin to doubt God's love for us. We think things like, how could he still love me if I've blown it again? Shows we need to put on the belt of truth, begin to renew our minds here. How can he still love me? But the protection is here in Christ's own righteousness. When he saved us, he gave us his own righteousness freely. That means his perfect obedience is ours. It belongs to us by faith and faith alone. And when God sees us, He sees Christ's very own righteousness and treats us as such. And this helps us then to to see our own sin and to own it and to to, to come to Him in honest confession, to confess to other people if we need to. And not to doubt His love. We know that His love for us has never changed in Christ. We We know that our righteous standing has never changed because of our sin. And then this leads us then with that foundation to how, how, we, how, we actively, how we actively appropriate it is by cultivating in our lives. By cultivating in our lives. And again, you see this. I'll put Ephesians 4 and 5 there. We'll talk about that in just a second. Because it's really the back half of Ephesians. As we cultivate the righteousness of Jesus, we are protected from devastating sin patterns in our lives. We're shielded. We have the breastplate of of real tangible righteousness, and that is protective for us. Satan tries to deceive us into sinning against Jesus. And when we are in sin, we are advancing Satan's agenda instead of the Lord's agenda. And Satan's goal, just spelling it out, his goal in getting us to sin is to introduce pain, confusion, depression, fear, Anger, resentment, gossip, and all of those devastations into our lives. But as we learn to cultivate Christ's righteousness instead of that, we're protected from all of that devastation. We're not perfect, but there is a protection that happens as we're learning to humbly cultivate His righteousness. Instead of advancing Satan's kingdom, we advance Christ's and we experience His joy. His fruitfulness, His peace, all the fruit of the Spirit. And that's a sweet exchange, and it's protective. And like I said, if you want examples of what this looks like, just read back through Ephesians 4 and 5. Paul gives us an education on what it looks like to mimic Christ. He says it looks like being truthful with each other. It looks like working hard to earn money so that we can share it with each other when we're in need. It looks like forgiving each other lavishly. It looks like reconciling each other when we sin. It looks like getting angry about the right kind of things. It looks like being sexually pure and radically loving to other people. It looks like redeeming the time. So I mean, he's, he's very practical in the back half of this book at what this looks like in real time. And he doesn't just stop in, in the church life. I mean, he gives the bulk of his time there, but then he presses it into family relationships. Husbands and wives, children, parents, slaves and masters. I mean, he works it into the weeds of our lives and often the most challenging scenarios. But his point in this context 
this context of spiritual warfare is that we see Christ's righteousness as armor. That we see the virtue that we're striving to cultivate is making you an effective warrior in this cosmic battle. And that is incentivizing, isn't it? To think that we are, we are kicking Satan's hordes in the teeth as we cultivate Christ's likeness is highly motivating. So that's our second bit of armor here as we're, as we're going to stand. We've got, to, we've got to appropriate his righteousness. Next in, in verse 15, Paul describes this third piece of armor as he moves down to our feet. And we'll call this one the shoes of readiness. The shoes of readiness down in verse 15. He says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So in this verse, Paul introduces another interesting virtue, which he calls readiness, or another word we could, we could use to describe this is preparedness, being prepared. And he likens it to shoes that we put on our feet. So what do we need to be ready for? What do we need to be prepared for? Well, even though Paul doesn't answer that question explicitly here, I think he's talking about a readiness for evangelism. A readiness for evangelism. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice that Paul says that this readiness comes from something or it's produced by something. Paul says that the readiness we're to put on is given by the gospel of peace. It comes from the gospel. It's connected with the gospel. So in other words, Paul's telling us that our own experience of the gospel, when we learn to live in the glorious reality of the gospel, that this actually prepares us to share that same gospel. We are prepared when we live in the reality of the gospel of peace. It prepares us to advance as we step forward in bold proclamation. Our feet are ready to stand and to step forward. So we could say it like this. We, we put on these shoes by learning to live in, the, live in and by the gospel. So we can look at this backwards too. This means if we are struggling to share the gospel, or we're failing to share the gospel, we're too afraid to share the gospel, this may mean that we may not be living by it like we think we are. It may not be as central to us as we might like to think. And I know evangelism is difficult. Uh, there's lots of questions when we, when we think through evangelism and what that looks like. But according to this, the shoes of readiness are our experience of the gospel. The readiness is produced by this experience of the gospel. And so ask yourself this question. Is your day-to-day -day relationship with Christ nourished by and fueled by all that He is for you in the gospel? The good news proclaims to us that Christ has absorbed all of God's wrath. We sang about that multiple songs this morning. He has absorbed all of God's wrath. He's drank it to the final drop. And that Christ has earned all our righteousness. It proclaims to us that God loves us fully. He loves us freely. And He even loves us eternally. 
And it says all that knowing full well what we are and what we deserve. It's totally in spite of us. When we sin, the Lord is grieved. Don't hear me saying He's not grieved and that sin doesn't matter. He is grieved, but, and this is huge, the intensity of His love toward you is not diminished in the slightest. Grieved? Yes. Intensity of love changed? No. That's because we are fundamentally at peace with God. We are no longer at war with Him. He is no longer our enemy. He is our friend and Father. We are at peace. It is the gospel of peace. We're no longer an enemy and never to return to one. And as good as this relationship is now, it only gets better. We'll be resurrected one day. We'll be rewarded one day. We'll be fully glorified one day in an intimate friendship with the Lord and with one another. And we'll do meaningful work in the new creation eternally. In an earth that far surpasses the glories of this one. That's the gospel. So what happens when we really live each day like that's true? Like really honestly believe that. A heart that's fully embracing these glorious realities, a heart that's experiencing the blessing of this kind of covenant relationship with the Lord, a heart that is consistently at peace, it's consistently rejoicing, it's consistently hopeful, it's consistently confessing sin, this kind of heart is ready to share, isn't it? It's ready and eager to talk about the Christ that it loves. Christ is dear to that heart because of its experience of Christ. And that kind of person is also ready and eager to warn people of their sin. Why? Because we know it's deceptive. We know how devastating sin is. So we're willing, at cost to ourselves, to stick our necks out and say the difficult things, to risk the friendships out of love for unbelievers. And all of this is being born out of our own experience of the love of Christ for us. This kind of heart longs for people to know the mercy and the love of Jesus, the mercy they have experienced and continue to experience with Him each day. So, as Paul says here, really believing the Gospel, living by it, is what produces a readiness to share it. So work that backwards. What's your relationship with Christ like? Is it based on Him? Are you taking Him at His word? Are you cherishing His love for you? Or are you measuring His love for you based on your level of obedience? So those are the shoes of readiness that Paul describes here. Ready to to proclaim the gospel. The next bit of armor is the shield of faith. Verse 16. 
The shield of faith. In all circumstances, Paul writes, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So did you hear that? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, and you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That kind of jumps out at us as we read that, that bit of armor. Is sort of the comprehensiveness of it stands out. So that makes it important for us to key in on, okay, if we, if, if we have this faith, then we can extinguish every single flaming arrow of Satan. So what exactly is faith? We have to nail that down. What is it? Faith is believing God's words. It's taking God at His word. It looks away from self and to Him. It looks like trusting God's promises, we say. It looks like trembling at His warnings. It looks like heeding His commands. Faith yields to God's Word above what we think, above what we feel, above what we want, above what even seems right to us or rational to us in the moment. Faith yields to God's Word above all that. And that's faith. And Paul says here, we need the shield of faith in all of life's circumstances. All of them. Every circumstance. And we need them in every circumstance because Satan's arrows are coming at us from every angle, in every circumstance, to extinguish all of Satan's fiery lies. And the lies are coming. Paul compares them to flaming darts or arrows. Arrows lit on fire and intending to lodge in these wooden shields and set them ablaze. That is a great metaphor to remember when we're tempted. Satan's aim is to set us on fire with his deceit. So don't be lulled to sleep. If you're not battling to renew your mind, You've been caught. You're unaware that there is this influx of deception and it is the evidence that you have bought into it. Satan's aim is to set us on fire with his deceit. But the shield that Paul is referring to is not a small wooden shield. No, this shield is designed for flaming arrows. It's the size of a door, it's wrapped in leather, and it's drenched in water. That kind of door is designed to extinguish these flaming arrows in battle. And Paul says here that faith does precisely that. It extinguishes the fires of unbelief. And that's where the Roman centurion side is coming out here, of this background. It's that, that size shield that extinguishes the fires of unbelief. But what I love about faith is that it's not contingent on our feelings. I love that. I love that it's not contingent on how we feel. In fact, faith is often exercised in spite of what we feel. Think about Abraham. Do you think that he wanted to sacrifice Isaac when God commanded him to? No. He didn't. 
Absolutely not. But his faith was operative. He trusted God's promise and he acted. This is like one of the most radical texts in the Bible. He acted in obedience in spite of what he felt and of everything he perceived to be true and accurate. Isaac was the son of the promise. He yielded his own will. He yielded what he thought was best and he trusted exclusively in God's word. He put on the belt of truth, in other words, and he yielded himself by faith to it. So faith is not contingent on our emotions. Far from it. It's often exercised in spite of it. So that means then, if, if we've got to appropriate faith, means we've got to strengthen it, right? We've got to strengthen faith. But how do we do that? Well, we just said it. We have to load up our minds with truth, okay? And we have to yield our will to Christ in obedience. So that's how faith is strengthened. Faith always has an object. And that's the truth. It's Christ. It's His Word. So our minds have to be renewed if we're going to exercise faith. We have to know the truth. We have to believe it. Something to believe. And then the practical outworking of faith is yielding our will to the truth in obedience. And Abraham is that that case in point. Every act of obedience, true obedience, is an act of faith. You see that? Every act of obedience is a true act of faith. That's why the Christian life is summed up as walking by faith and not by sight. So we obey by faith. When you trust the Lord and you obey Him, just like Abraham, you're actively strengthening faith. And that's the only way to do it. There's no other way to strengthen faith. God's not just going to zap you with more faith. You're exercising your faith muscle, so to speak. You're learning to rely not on what you see or feel or experience, but on what God's Word says alone. And that can be an unnerving experience. But that's precisely how we strengthen faith. And again, the only way. And as we do this day in and day out, we are extinguishing Satan's lies. That's what this says right here. We're refusing his temptations. We're standing against him in this cosmic battle. And so faith is that fourth bit, that fourth piece of armor here um, in the battle. So now we're going to, the text transitions a bit. In verse 17, Paul's going to describe our fifth piece of armor. And it's like up to this point, it's as though the intensity uh, it, ratchets up, it ratchets up a bit in verse 17. Up until now, all the bits of armor have been describing how we stand. So, stand has been the command. Stand by girding up your loins. Stand by putting on. Stand by taking up. So, stand was kind of the, the main command. But now in verse 17, he brings in another direct command. And it's take up. Take up. Take up your helmet. Take up your sword. And it's as though our remaining armor and the, has a forward-looking, kind of take-the-hill attitude. And that brings us to number five here, the helmet of salvation. In verse 17, Paul tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet we grab as we're running to the battle. And he says that's our salvation. 
Our head is protected as we lean forward in the battle. So what's Paul thinking of when he refers to our salvation? I think Paul is envisioning here our hope of final salvation. Final salvation. The salvation that's coming at the return of Jesus when He rescues us fully and finally from all of our enemies, including Satan. It's not to minimize the current... We are currently saved, but we will be saved. Now, why do I say it's future here? What leads me to take that interpretation? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8... Paul uses this same imagery of putting on the helmet of salvation. But there, he adds another word. He says, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. The helmet, which is the hope of salvation. Hope is forward-looking. It's our sure hope that we will be saved. That we will be delivered. That we will be rescued. And I think this future idea fits beautifully here in this chapter of Ephesians. So then, Paul wants us to actively call to mind our future salvation. And that's how we put it on, by actively calling to mind our future salvation. Why is that? What happens when we actively uh, call this to mind? Well, what happens when you know the the end of a basketball game? Because you pre-recorded it. It kind of takes the fun out of it, but especially if it's a, your team won, you watch it with confidence, right? You watch it knowing that, okay, it's gonna, there's, victory is going to be there, right? What happens when we call to mind future victory? We are energized now to persevere in the battle. We're energized now. We're in constant danger of growing weary, aren't we? Constant danger of falling headlong into discouragement by what appears to be the rise of evil around us, our own failures, sin, difficulty and obedience in the church, all these things. We're constantly in danger of discouragement. We're constantly under siege by satanic forces that are far more powerful and cunning than we are. But when we remember that the final victory is sure, that the ultimate deliverance has already been accomplished, and we will most certainly be uh, delivered when the king returns, when I remember this, man, I am emboldened to fight. And even if I die in battle, even if you and I die holding the line, our deliverance is still coming. Death will not get the final word. Our resurrection is coming and life eternal awaits us. The new creation is our inheritance. We will reign over Satan and the angels and all of our enemies when Christ returns. He will save us. This kind of confident future hope will energize us right now for the battle. We're literally unconquerable. Not in ourselves, but in Him. When this helmet is strapped on securely by faith, we can run headlong into the battle. We can run headlong into certain death in courage and with perseverance. So how often do you call this to mind? At work? In chronic pain? Fears of their coronavirus? 
other fears that are, that are surrounding us today. The curse is all around us. How often do you call this to mind? Because Paul says, this has to be our motivation on a daily basis. Paul says this future hope must be well-worn in our minds. It must be robust if we're going to fight well. We can't be entangled thinking this life is all there is. And even now, as we feel the strength in our hands rising, Paul shouts to us to take up our sword along with our helmet. And that's the final weapon that he gives us here. We'll call the sixth weapon the sword of the Spirit, because that's what he calls it in our text. Oh, here we go. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In this final weapon, Paul ends where he begins with an emphasis on the truth. Here, though, the emphasis is not on mobilization only as a belt, but it's on active counterattacks with a sword in close combat. It's a weapon. And before he identifies this weapon as the Word of God, Paul describes the sword as belonging to or maybe ultimately wielded by another. By the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's sword. Or the sword that the Spirit uses. Now I think that's interesting. Especially because we're called upon to take, up, take it up and use it. Fight with it. But Paul wants us to be aware that as we use it, we ourselves are not bringing about any kind of ultimate changes, like in and of ourselves, by our use of the sword. We're not ultimately advancing anything by ourselves. Ultimately, it's the Spirit who makes the attack lethal. And what's the sword? It says here, it's the Word of God. It's the life-giving, world-creating, faith-generating Word of God. And in the hands of the third person of the Trinity, The Word of God is the most powerful weapon we could possess. So what do we do with the sword? Right? We wield it. Or in our case, we proclaim it. What does it look like to appropriate the sword and to use it? It looks like sharing the truth. And we share it in evangelism, and we share it in the the in the church, in edification, to build one another up. Outside and within. Edification and evangelism. As we proclaim it, God promises to work in and through His Word. He promises to bring about everything He intends through the dissemination of His words. So let's think about evangelism. Think about what the Bible says about evangelism. As we boldly and clearly speak the truth, as as we confront idolatry and lies in the culture, The Lord says that He promises to either harden or create faith by the power of His Word. Acts 15.7, Romans 10.17. Now getting at that same idea, the Bible says that He multiplies disciples, Acts 12.24, and He causes His people to be born again, 1 Peter 1.23, by His Word. The Bible also states it in the negative. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says the Lord destroys spiritual strongholds by His Word. In chapter 10, verse 4. So the implication then is that he transfers those who are under Satan's dominion into the kingdom of his son by the power of his word. So that's, that's evangelism. He says things about edification too. He says God's work, God, God is at work in his people and he builds up his people by his word. Acts 20, 32. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. 
He liberates us from the life-dominating sin patterns by His Word. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. He teaches us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ by His Word. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. And God even helps us discern the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts and motivations by His Word. So we need to be confident in the power of God's Word. We need to grip this sword with both hands and never put it down. We do not need anything else. You're not going to find anything with more power to affect more change in people than God's very words. So don't fall prey to thinking that we need more than the Bible to actually help dead sinners come to life and to be transformed into all that God intends for them. Last thing we'll say is when it comes to how we wield this incredible sword, we've got to remember that the rest of the commands of Scripture still apply. We can't just go hacking away, wrongly motivated, okay? We wield it, we proclaim it with the motive of love. The self-sacrificing love of Christ. With the humility of Christ. With the gentleness of Christ. With the pity of Christ. With the extreme patience of Christ. And with great understanding and with great empathy. And yet, we wield it unswervingly. We wield it in season out of season, whether it's popular or not, whether we take heat for it or whether we are praised for it. And ultimately, we wield it in joyful confidence knowing that God will accomplish absolutely everything He intends through His sword. Satan cannot stand up to the words of the living God. So there's Paul's list of what we need for battle. Six pieces of armor that we have to appropriate um, to fight well. And I love this because it's a list of radically ordinary things. Spiritual warfare is fought in the ordinary. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation. They're ordinary and yet they are completely sufficient to stand faithful in this evil day. So as we wrap up, I just want to challenge you to think back through this list to think about which part of this armor stands out most to you. Which have you underestimated? Which one have you neglected? Which one has been a particular encouragement to you this, in this message? Identify one or two of those and try to cultivate this armor. Try to, try to put this on more this week and ask somebody else that you know that seems to be doing well in, this, in, in the area that you're struggling. Ask them how they've cultivated these, these truths. And remember, we are in a cosmic war every day. We are fighting a crafty, unseen enemy. So do not be lulled to sleep by him. And yet, don't be afraid of him. Be strong in the strength that Christ supplies. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for how 
sufficiently you've outfitted us for the battle. You have left us here, but you have not left us alone. You are with us. Our final victory is secure, and you have given us everything we need, as Peter says, for life and godliness. Teach us, Lord, to rely on your methods and not our own. Um, Strengthen our faith today out of a message like this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.